Well, you made it. I don't mean you made it here. Well, that's obvious. You, you made it one day more, and you've made it through 2018. For those of you who doubted you could make it, aren't you excited? You made it, in spite of everything that's taken place. So the big question now is, what do you do with next year, right? And uh, that's what we want to talk about today. The, what we just sang, where we want to see Jesus, and we want to be in his presence, uh, we want the Holy Spirit to shadow over us. All of these are things that you and I should desire. C.S. Lewis said once that uh, if you seek heaven, uh, you'll get heaven and earth thrown in. If you seek earth, you get neither. And so we want to seek heaven. What does that mean? We want to understand Christ better than we do. Because you see, it's really all about Jesus. I know we worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who did the work. Christ is the one who was sent here. And you and I have a particular vision of him. Now, we've never seen him. We haven't been literally in a place, I don't think any of you have, where you saw Jesus face to face and you could recognize him. But if you're like me, in my mind's eye, I have a perception of him. There's certain ways I want to think about him. Uh, maybe I would think at one time about him as a baby. We just celebrated that. It was hard not to think of the child Jesus. Or perhaps you go a little bit further and you think of him when he was 12 years old and he was speaking to his elders and instructing them in the word of God. That's kind of an exciting time to see this young man doing these things. And then you jump forward to his public ministry he entered that at age maybe 29, maybe 30, did it for three years. There is the miracle-working Jesus. There is the word Jesus where he's speaking and things are changing and happening and he's doing miracles and people are being healed and demons are being cast out. I like to think of that Jesus. That seems to be more the Jesus I'm looking for. Or maybe even combined with that, we think of the crucified Christ because... We know that without that, we have nothing. Unless he was crucified, dead, and buried, unless he rose again, you and I are without hope. But he did, so we have hope. So I think of this crucified Christ, but I never leave him there or on the cross because I know he came off, went to the grave, and then he was raised from the dead. Maybe you think of him as he's going away in the clouds I don't know what your thoughts of him are. I want to ask you to do <clears throat> something for just a second. Why don't you close your eyes, and it's what we call a blink. Just in a blink, I want you to picture Jesus in your own life. All right? Just do that for me. Close your eyes, picture Jesus in your life. Okay. Now, how did you see him? Somebody just speak up. One word. How did you see him? Bright light. Love. He had your back. Anything else? Yeah. All right. So you're, you're expressing him in a way that is action-oriented because that's how we see him. We see him based on what we know he's already done. And then as you look back over this previous year, you remember the times he showed up. I mean, he was always there, but he reflected himself through his actions in your life. And so thinking of Jesus is important. 
Someone once said, I don't go 15 minutes without thinking of Christ. I didn't say that. (laughs) I wish I had. I wish I could. I wish I could get myself so dependent upon his presence that he was my always thought, that I just think about him. But there's so many things that distract us from thinking about Jesus. And this isn't new. This distraction of distortion started centuries ago when people wanted to show Jesus simply as a man. There were controversies throughout church history that he's a man, he's just a man. Another one, well, he floated about three inches off the ground. He never was fully a man. Another one, well, he became the Christ, but he really was a man who became God later. Lots of bad theories and concepts. And along with that, lots of depictations of who he was and what he looked like. Mostly in the Byzantine Empire is when it began. When they took the Greco-Roman concepts of the gods, Zeus and Neptune, and they began to give human features to them. And then they decided that Jesus was human, so he could also be one of the gods. That's why when Paul is in Athens, he says, I perceive you are religious people because I see you have a name for every god except one, and I've come to tell you about him. So you see, they had humanized Christ to the point that they removed all of his glory that we just sang about. And it didn't stop there. Then people began to want to express what he might have looked like. And so you have throughout the ages, uh, the great artists of their times painting what they thought Christ would have looked like. And you see the stained glass windows that begin to be developed that have the stories in them. And there is Christ in those. And Then in the 8th and ninth century, there came something called the iconoclastic controversy. That was a controversy over icons, and an icon at that time was a depictation of Christ. And they believed, Scripture said, you should have no images of God. And so those who favored no images tried to defeat those who favored images, but they won in some cases, but lost in most. So now you have pictures of Christ all over the place. And that never really stopped. You could see them today. Just go online. You'll see many different depictations of what Christ might have looked like, the majority of which are probably wrong. Why do I say that? Because Christ was an average Jew. Isaiah says in 53.2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He looked like every other young man in his community. There was a little bit of difference here and there, but he was so undistinct that when it came time after speaking in Nazareth to try to catch him and throw him over the hill, it says, remember, that he went his way a different way, and they couldn't. Why? Because all he had to do was mingle into the midst of the crowds. He looked just like everybody else. They couldn't find him. So here's this Christ that's been depicted, and we don't know what he looks like. All we know is we know him by what he has done. We know him as he has expressed himself to you and to me. 
And, and that's what's important. So these distractions continued through history. Now, some of them weren't ill-intended. They just happened. 1951, during that period of the 50s, I grew up on Atlas Comics. Anybody know what those were? They're the precursor to Marvel Comics. And then Disney in 2009 bought the Marvel Comics. Now, let me tell you, Superman's my man. I mean, I... I just like Superman. I like him much better than Batman, you know. So I'm a Superman fan. Um, do you know that the writer depicted Superman and Batman and Flash and a few others as supportive of the Christian movement? That makes me feel better, you know, because I could say, oh, Mom, but Superman's a Christian. <laughs> he had a, an agenda that he was trying to affect the society in a lot of different ways. But the idea of the supernatural in a man suddenly begins to penetrate your thinking and my thinking. So that now when I think of Christ, do I think, oh, Christ must be a, a lot like Superman. I mean, he could fly. He moved from one place to another. He always seemed to know when things were happening and he had the power and the strength to turn it and make it right. Wow. That must be what Christ is like. You know, when you're a young kid, that wasn't intended by the writer, but it is a distraction. And these distractions continue to come forth in the 1960s. God is dead was a movement in America started by German theologians that God never really existed. He didn't exist now, and if he did, he died. So you don't need salvation. Another movement during the 70s and some of the 80s in the midst of the Jesus movement was the movement to eradicate the reality of a spiritual world. Paul said that we war not against flesh and blood, but we war against powers and principalities. We war against the spiritual ones, the evil ones who follow Satan. That's who we war against. But throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, there has been this desire to bring that into just being a myth. It's just mythology. It's nothing to worry about. It's Harry Potter. It's all that kind of stuff. Nothing to worry about. And it robs us of a knowledge of the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see, we're being distracted all the time. And as we end this year, I believe God wants us to have a better vision of who Christ is, a more complete understanding of him because it's easy for you and for me as believers as followers of Christ to accept what we know he is and to see him as we understand him through what he does in our lives as he provides for us as he heals us as he comforts us in our time of sorrow and loss we have that kind of God and that's how we perceive him as the loving compassionate redeemer and we should because he is. That's how the apostle John saw him. Now, John was his favorite. He was one in the three, and John actually said, I'm the one he loved the best. John rested his head on the shoulder of Jesus at the Last Supper. And John was at the cross when Jesus was crucified, and John received the mother of Christ to care for her the rest of his life. Because he was very, very close to Jesus. He'd seen all the miracles. And he said, if everything that he had done in those three years had been recorded, 
The libraries of the world could not hold it. So we only get a glimpse of who Christ is. But John knew him. John knew him intimately. And John was chosen to be the one who would live the longest, the last apostle of the 12. And in his last days, he was still saying, you know, love one another, love Jesus, love one another. When I first became a Christian and the elders began to move me toward this idea that I should go into the ministry, my pastor just kept saying, look, it's all about Jesus. If it's not, it ought to be. That's all it is. It's just about Jesus. You just need Jesus. Just tell everybody about Jesus. I mean, I almost became sick over hearing this. That's all it was because I didn't realize that's all it is. So I went to seminary. In my third year, I had that ominous event. It's called the senior sermon. It's where you go up before the faculty and you preach your probably last message that you'll preach in seminary, but hopefully not your last message ever. The one who preached before me, I still remember it to this day. What an orator he was. He was great. I just didn't want to follow him at all because he was so good. Well, right after you preach, you sit on the front and the faculty tell you what they think. And this one faculty member, Dr. Richard DeWitt, looked at my friend and he said, young man, that is perhaps one of the greatest messages I've ever heard in this chapel. And I'm thinking, oh, that's good. <laughs> he said, you, you just, your elocution was perfect. He went on for like 10 minutes. And he said, I only had one problem, one little problem. He said, it had nothing to do with your text. And so now I'm looking at my text. Am I preaching the text? Is it what God wants? So I walk up for my first time ever to this pulpit. Now, this pulpit is a classic pulpit from the 1600s. You walk up 13 steps to get to it. On either side, you can use. And, and you get up there, and then as you approach the podium that's spread out like this around you, you step up on a box. Now you're about 35 feet above everyone. <clears throat> and it's like, whoa. I like the view, you know. I just hope what I have to say is good. And so I've got my manuscript there, and I back up. And right here on the inside lip of the podium in brass is monogrammed this statement from John 12, 21. Sir, we would see Jesus. It's obviously stuck with me forever. Because Paul said, if I preach not Christ, you know, woe is me. It's all about Jesus. Alan and I talked this morning, and we agree. As long as God keeps us here, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is what's building this church, not us. Jesus is the one who's saving lives, not us, not our elders, not our staff. Jesus is the one who's called you together to do something great for his kingdom. It's all about him. So keep that in mind. It's not about us. We're not great. We're obedient as best we can be. So here's John who is obedient. John has this relationship with Christ. So great is his relationship that he refuses to back down. And the authorities who did not like Christianity decided they would send him 
to what we would call today the modern-day Alcatraz. They sent him to this island called Patmos. It was a stone quarry. All he did was work, except on the Lord's Day. Now, notice, it doesn't say the Sabbath. It says the Lord's Day. The reason it's the Lord's Day is because from the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Sunday, that day forever has been called the Lord's Day because he created it with his resurrection. So here is John on the Isle of Patmos, and he's got the Lord's Day here. He is so excited, and he finds himself in the Spirit, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and let's read what he observed. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the 10th day, I was in the Spirit. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. In that one vision, John's view of Jesus changed. You see, John had seen him as a man. He had walked with him. He had slept down beside him. He had prayed with him. He had dined with him. He had suffered for him. So he had the closest possible of all relationships. But the danger with that for you and for me is we can reduce this awesome God to this human concept. And we think of him as healer and redeemer and savior and guardian and all the things we want him to be. But it's also possible that we forget that he is the great God of the universe, the judge of all mankind. I believe when Paul, in another writing, says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He's not talking about work to gain your salvation. He's saying, now that you have your salvation, you should have this incredible awe, and you should tremble in the presence of that awe to do everything you can do to be the best you can be in the Spirit for Christ's sake. I believe it takes a constant renewal in our minds, this vision that needs to come to you of who this God is apart from being the redeemer of mankind. Remember, he came once to seek and save the lost. That's still happening today. 
But the next time he comes, he comes to judge the living and the dead. Now, here's the joy of that. We've already passed through that first judgment because his righteousness has been placed upon you. All your sins have been forgiven, past, present, future. You are clean in him. So when he comes again, it's not for you. We will be caught up with him in the air or we will come and get our bodies back because we predeceased everyone else. And, and now we will be with him. There's another judgment that comes later for you and for me, but it has nothing to do with our eternal salvation. But this judgment is so awesome that it's coming. It's so incredible and terrible that we need to tell people about it. We don't need to be looking for earth and miss heaven and earth. We need to be seeking the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. Let's look for a second at what Paul saw, I mean, John saw as he, as he had this vision. Now, he was overwhelmed. He was cognizant. He could see what he was seeing, but he's trying to describe it. And have you ever done this little game, maybe you could do it later today, where you pick up a picture and the other person with you does not see the picture and you sit back to back, you try to describe the picture for them to draw. Have you ever done that? If you work with youth, you've done that. It's almost impossible, isn't it? Because trying to convey something someone else has never seen to them. John is trying to convey to you and to me what he sees that we've never seen. So he's using human language to try to encapsulate this great judge who is coming. First thing he sees is the robe. That's what Isaiah saw when he went into the temple. What does the robe mean? Well, first of all, when Jesus walked the earth, he walked it with a knee-length robe because that's what they wore back then, and he was a typical Jew. They did that so that when it was time to run somewhere, they gathered all the cloth and tucked it into their belt. That's what was called girding the loins, and then they could run. The only people that wore long robes were those in high authority. Well, he sees this all-white robe, this amazing look. It's not a bleached fabric. It's pure white, and it touches all the way to the ground. It's the ultimate authority. That's what it represents, that our God has ultimate authority over all things at all times. He sees that. Then he sees the golden sash. People used to put on the belt of truth down here, but Jesus slides that up to here because that's the sign of the high priest. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest of his own order, and he has this pure gold sash to represent that he is the high priest. He is the king. He is the prophet. So he fulfills his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And that's what John is seeing, and I'm sure by now John is beginning to tremble a little bit. Then he sees the eyes, the eyes that look into every heart here, the eyes that look into my heart, the eyes that see us for who we really are and love us anyway. But they're all-knowing eyes. They penetrate with a knowledge beyond understanding. So our God sees all things at all times. Nothing is hidden from him. And John sees this and realizes that he's penetrating his own heart now. Then he sees that hair 
that white, woolly, beautiful hair that's coming down, which represents the ancient of days, the, the aged one. Uh, the, the scripture speaks of those with white hair, the wisdom that they have and the years that they've gained. But here is the ultimate who has existed forever and ever. There never was a time when he was not, nor shall there be. But here is our God with this white hair and this white robe and this golden sash around him with these eyes that are burning fire into all of the universe. And there's the voice. What a voice. Not because of its sound, but because of the power attached to it. That from the voice is the word of God. And the word of God creates and the word of God destroys. The word of God put everything into motion that is and he will take it all away in his perfect time. That's the power of that voice. Someone asked me once, well, how will we know? How will we all be able to see him when he comes again? I said, you'll know his voice because he said, my sheep know my voice. So John's hearing this voice and then he sees this sword coming out of the mouth. It says it's a double-edged sword. C.H. Spurgeon said, it's not a double edge with a back to it. It's all edge because you cannot handle the word of God without being cut. See, the word of God is going to penetrate you and it's going to straighten you up and it's going to wound you in order to heal you. And that's what John is seeing now. So he sees this sword coming out and then he sees the face. And the face is a face of ultimate brightness, so bright that he can't open his eyes again to see it. And what does he do? He falls on his face as though he is dead. The proper response in the presence of God, because no man can look upon God and live. Together, he sees strength, majesty, authority, and righteousness. Now, let me tell you, as I go into 2019, I'm not going to lose my focus on my God, the healer, my God, the provider. I'm not going to lose my focus on my God who comforts me and all the different ways that I see him. I'll, I'll hold on to those. But because of this text, I now have a vision of God as the judge of the universe, that this God is coming and no man knows the hour. And when he comes, he's coming for judgment. His eyes will penetrate the evil in this world. Everything will be taken care of by God and everything will be made right and just. And you and I will inherit a new world. That's amazing. That's how I want to see him. I don't want to limit him to what he's doing for me. I want to see him as he is, which is greater than I can perceive. So if I hold on to him in this view of him, just as a glimpse, then I have something added to hold on to for next year because as you, I know I'm going to need him. I can't do life without him. It's all about Jesus. Artists have tried to capture John and his vision. There's several that I looked at online and some of them were a little weak, some better than others. I caught one, just wanted to show you, just for a glimpse, like two seconds you're going to see it and it's going to show you who he is. That's probably something like what John saw. That's it. You don't need to look at it anymore. Because you see, the mind imprints. That's in your mind now. 
So when you think of Jesus, think of him as a baby. Think of him as a young boy, a man, the crucified. Think of him as resurrected, ascended. Think of him as coming again. When you do, think of him as the judge of the universe. But remember, you're okay if you have accepted him as Lord and Savior. If you haven't, it's a free offer today so that you won't see him coming as judge in your life. You'll see him coming as redeemer. To start our new year, I thought it would be appropriate for us to pray. Pray corporately. I'll do the praying. Don't worry. And as we pray, I want you to be thinking of things that you can do to get to know Jesus better. Starting next week, come back for this series that teaches us how to use our tongues, how to live this life, and use the gifts that God has given you to be everything that he's called you to be. Remembering this, if it's not about Jesus, it ought to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are hundreds of names in Scripture. But thank you for giving us this, this glimpse of you. Daniel had the same glimpse, and John had it. Isaiah saw some form of it in the temple. So, Lord, from these three men, we have a glimpse of who you are more fully now than before. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you that we're not left here alone on this earth to try to figure out what to do. We need you so much, Lord. We need your comfort and your love. We need your guidance. We need you to light the pathway that we should follow. We need you to forgive us and give us the strength to forgive one another. Lord, as we face this new year, only you know what is planned. And so we put our entire selves into the Spirit. Guide us, Holy Spirit. Come and fill this atmosphere. You are holy, Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If you have never come to Christ before and asked for forgiveness, do that now with this prayer. Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me from my sins. I feel your eyes penetrating my heart, knowing who I am. Thank you for your forgiveness. I commit my life to you. Lord, we recommit our lives to you as we start this new year. We thank you for all you've done for us this year as a church, for we are the church. You've cared for us and loved us. You've comforted us. You've provided for us. You've healed us. Lord, continue to make Jesus alive in us. Help us to see him as he is. And we will praise you, Lord, throughout this day, tomorrow, and the next year. For we pray all these things in that matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Stand up and receive a blessing from the Lord as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you a very safe New Year's Eve. Go out and have a great time. God bless you. See you next year.